Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Mira Nair, acclaimed Indian filmmaker and director of BBC One's adaptation of Vikram Seth's A Suitable Boy, about making her television debut and finishing the series as the coronavirus pandemic hit. John Giwa Amu, head of production for Goodgate Media, discusses the Welsh company's new interactive romantic comedy Five Dates, filmed during lockdown, and the lessons it learned from Black Mirror's Bandersnatch. And Asif Sheikh, chief executive of Kenya-based A24 Media, talks about the launch of the firm's new factual-focused streaming service Yebu and why he believes a content revolution is now happening in Africa. With a 30-year film career boasting titles such as Monsoon Wedding and Salam Bombay, acclaimed Indian filmmaker Meera Nair made her television debut recently with six-part BBC drama A Suitable Boy, based on Vikram Seth's novel about a young girl coming of age in the 1950s at the same time as a newly independent India. She spoke with Michael Pickard from her home in New York about wrapping the series as the pandemic hit, partnering with Seth and War and Peace screenwriter Andrew Davis on the project, moving into television and why A Suitable Boy remains a modern universal story. We have been so fortunate that we finished shooting the 17th of December and moved almost immediately to London to start editing it in early January. You know, cut 12 hours a day, 10 hours a day, whatever, January and February in Soho. And then I just came for a weekend with a knapsack on my back on, in March to see my family. And that day the world changed. That was March 10th. And I never came back to London. So I have been editing remotely everything uh, since the 10th of March. And not, in, not a day off. I mean, we've been editing now sound designing and mixing and orchestrating and recording orchestra in Budapest, everything remote and additional dialogue recording, dubbing from uh, almost 50 actors in India, all of whom been shipped these beautiful microphones that they can wear around their iPhones. I mean, it's been a whole new world. And then they go under covers in their basements in Bombay and, <laughs> and we record and it w- sort of works. It does work, I think. And so, yeah, it's been a... Uh, I would say a 12-hour a day, very focused, and we've not lost a day. Uh, we are on track, you know, but mm-hmm. but it's extraordinary. I never thought this could happen. I mean, you've obviously been planning this for, uh, I guess, a couple of years, and, and then it all comes down to the wire, and you end up working from home and, and finishing yeah. it. it. Must I mean, has it been practically it's been okay? It's just been obviously a lot of communication, I, I guess? It's been amazing. No, I'm saying that we have not done this with any compromise that I would consider a compromise, uh-huh. you know? It's extraordinary because it's also teaching us a way of possibly making cinema in the future. But now it can happen without the shooting. And we were just lucky that we finished this mega epic shooting in uh, just a month, really a month before the virus came to our yeah. borders, you know? Obviously, there will be changes on, on film sets and, and TV sets going forward, I guess, for the foreseeable future. But do you imagine, you know, you'll be remotely editing in the future or will this change things? It will be changing things if it needs to be. And I think it could, especially with, you know, saving costs, essentially. It's just become very clear as to what is possible. And I think technology will keep up with it. And so it will even get better. But it is entirely possible. I have three devices on my desk and the mix is going on on the left of me. The (laughs) grading has gone on in the other side. And then it's this, you know, talking. It's extraordinary what is possible without compromise. And I'm lucky with this, Michael, is that I have, I'm working with a team that I've worked with for 25 years. Declan Quinn, the cinematographer, Stephanie, the designer, or... 
the editors, I, I mean, I, I know them very well. So it's, it makes it a little easier in terms of the shorthand of communication in such times. And, and, I, and I guess the last few months might have clouded your judgment slightly, but how would you just sum up your experience making, you know, making a TV series as opposed to any of the films that you've obviously done through your career? You know, I really uh, have embraced the long form. I call it cinema still, mm-hmm. but the long form storytelling that TV allows us to do and really embraces it. A Suitable Boy should not be made into a two-hour, stuffed into a two-hour movie scenario because it isn't like that. It's a 1,200-page tome with several interrelated worlds and it's a great joy. It's a correct form for to, for television, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of the unfolding process of it. And yet now, because so many, I think, great craftspeople from the cinema have come to work in television, uh, you know, it can have the magnificence and the sweep. That's how I looked at it, you know. Mm-hmm. The authenticity, having shot entirely on location, the light, the, the sound, but but also the, the sweep of it, the depth of it, the layers of it. For me, that was vital, and that would be how I would make a make cinema. I mean, I was aware, of course, it was television, <laughs> but it was more a structural awareness rather than a you know cinematic craft becoming different. And and so I mean, it's um it's been sort of put to me that you and, and Andrew Davies, the writer, and, and obviously Vikram Seth, who wrote the book, you're the kind of the the trio at the heart of of this production and and telling this story. Can you just take us back to the beginning and and how you got involved with Andrew and and Vikram on the adaptation? Well, firstly, I got involved because I love this novel. Uh, And I read it, one of those weird people who read it twice back to back, (laughs) right on beginning, and then... And then a third time, much later. But for me, it's the, the the great portrait of us, the subcontinent, you know, at the time when India had to find its voice as a free country. And that always is an era I wished I was born into. So it also, I should say, inspired my own film, Monsoon Wedding, 20 years ago, because Monsoon Wedding was like a microcosmic response to this major epic that I loved. I know that there were rumors that suitable, not rumors, actual things, that they were. it was trying to be a series several times, but it didn't get made and I wasn't involved. But this time, when I heard it was real, I, I really immediately wanted to throw my sari in the ring, as they say, and, uh, and, uh, and did. And by that time, Andrew had already made the eight eight hours of okay. it, a, a, a wonderful distillation. And then I got involved, and um, a series of reasons, we all decided to make it six hours. And in that further distillation, I got extremely involved, uh, you know, one of the architects of it. And because, Michael, I wanted it to be a very timely portrait of what's going on in India now, which... Vikram, I think, would have liked that because he wrote the politics very much inspired by the now when he was writing. For instance, creating the temple in front of the mosque was, is something that happened in our more more recent past than that time. But the seeds of it, the seeds of the Hindu-Muslim divide was very carefully architected back in 1951. And I wanted to very much, without putting a sledgehammer into it, I really wanted to make it that timely portrait of now. You know, why are we in the struggle today as we are. It was because of what happened then. That was number one. And number two, look at what it is like now. Uh, look at what it is was like then when there were Muslim, Hindu, such coexistence, such deep friendship, such a melange of language and of music and 
uh, we call, we have a name for it called Ganga Jamna culture, which is the confluence of the two rivers, you know, and it was fully that. And we've come so far from that now. So also, while I made it a hope to make it timely, it was also a portrait of what we came from, the richness of what we came from and the harmony, actually, mm-hmm. even post partition of what we came from. So for me, it was very important that this Hindu Muslim tonality was right, mm-hmm. you know, and, and accurate of today, which is I worked very closely with Vikram to ensure that to not to change the story, but to make sure that we were being deeply responsible to the layered complexity of that world, captured that modernity or that universality, you know, in in a young girl who has to yet live her life. And so, yeah, I, so I worked with Vikram several... He's also a friend of mine and my neighbor in Delhi. So we worked like that, but mostly with with uh, uh, Andrew for structure. And then once we got into the game of casting and actually then lots of other things developed within the script, you know, as well. But I mean, having been such a fan of, of the book and, and read it several times, did you already have an idea of how you might want to film it, what it should look like, or was yeah. that something I mean, that happened naturally during the development process? No, no. No, the, it, it entirely related to the script because mm. I was insisting and, and I didn't have to convince anyone that I wanted to shoot it entirely on location. <laughs> and that impacted what we could do or couldn't do in the story. And mostly we could do <laughs> how to make what we could do work. But yes, um, yeah, uh, it definitely impacted that. So the, the you know, the production plan of it and, act, and I guided them through Lucknow and these all these places that I know. And then that shaped the story in literal ways, but not hugely because mm-hmm. the story was already distilled by then but in the way that it does when you find things do you have um like a directing style that you like to to have or what kind of um, visual style did you want to bring to a suitable boy Firstly, if there's anything about my style, it's the casting. Often legends are opposite absolutely not what they call non-actors or people who have never faced the camera or think they're an actor. And that amalgam I love and I seem to keep on doing it. So a lot of Suitable Boy was also cast in like restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> Not fully, but like I would, you know, so it's a, for me, the families were so vital that they have to feel like they belong to each other. And it, it's a big process. And he's written such delightful characters that you really have to scour the, the, the landscape for finding, you know, the uppity brother who thinks he's an Englishman. With the, so I love that, the, the casting of people who are known and unknown, but who embody the spirit of what we are looking at. So that defines a lot of the energy. Of course, it had to be on location. I mean, I come from cinema verite, you know, I come from things that have to feel truthful. The light and the, the locales, and sometimes we shot in rooms in which he had actually written Suitable Boy. So a lot of the locations are real real places. I mean, they're all real, but in terms of even the, the story itself. So that informs the visual style. What was it about this story, Vikram's story, that meant you've kept coming back to the book? And, and why is it, do you think, viewers will want to follow Lata and, and Man through this voyage of discovery, you know, set against this period of, of time in India? You know, I think of the heart of Lata and the heart of India in the same breath, in a way, that as a young woman goes ahead and to try to find her voice in life, really having a great conviction in herself. Similarly, the the country goes on that journey for its first national election and sees whether it has its voice. So for me, that parallel was important. And I think that what people will love, I hope, is the, the humanity, is the heart of the story, is the fact that 
no matter when it might be set, it's you and me. It's it's us on there because we have all traveled through adolescence and through making mistakes, through folly, to find perhaps who we are. You know, so that tale of coming of age or coming of voice, both for a person and for a nation, it is is not something that you can simply observe, but that you can feel. You can be involved with. I hope. And for me, it's a beautiful but modern also way to remember from where we came. And it's modern because it's still the heart has not changed. But the the ambiance, the palette, the decorum, the etiquette, the propriety that you're supposed to have, that but your heart chafes against, all that is there to witness but has hasn't changed and has changed too. But um, on, an, on a political level, I really would love to have made a portrait of the syncretic amalgam of the Hindu and Muslim culture, the language and the music and the coexistence and the friendship, the depth of the friendship, like in the Nawab and the Mahesh characters, that we all grew up with, but that is fast being obliterated today. But this was a time, you know, and it's important to hold a mirror to that time because it is going, you know, and it's important to remember both where the joy came from and the, this, this, this syncretic quality came from, but also where the pain that we are living with today comes from. But mostly it's it's about it's about growing up, growing up as a young girl and as a young man and about a country growing up. Mira Nair, director of A Suitable Boy. Cardiff-based Goodgate Media released its first interactive movie earlier this year across PlayStation, Xbox and Nintendo. The Complex was a sci-fi series backed by, among others, Great Point Media and produced by John Giwa Amu. He spoke with Inigo Alexander about his new project, an interactive romantic comedy called Five Dates, in the works pre-pandemic but adapted to reflect the experience of lockdown dating and shot within these constraints. Giwa Amu also talked about the lessons learned from Black Mirror's interactive Bandersnatch episode from Netflix and how these inform development for content aimed at gaming audiences. Five Dates is the second film out of Goodgate Media, which is a company that's been incorporated to make interactive content. And we had had some success with the first film out, um, The Complex. It had kind of done week-for-week sales above the kind of nearest competitor. So we were really keen to get cracking into production. And um, the director of that film, Paul Rashid, and I had been talking about what to do next. And something in dating was something that really interested him and he's a you know under 30 he's you know in that world kind of thing and and it was quite refreshing for me as you know frankly a slightly older producer than him to you know get a window into what it's like you know being in the kind of dating world when you're younger now and and then of course you know covid happened the premise was always designed as an interactive premise but it, it wasn't designed first of all as a you know what dating has become now for many people um which is a, a video dating experience but we just thought that was a great opportunity and with sites like tinder um and bumble and hinge who are all you know either have dating uh, video dating on their sites like bumble already or in the case of tinder as a direct reflexive action to covid have put a video dating element on their platform we just thought it was something probably going to be here to stay and you know, my personal belief of it was uh, even if, you know, the best case scenario happens and COVID goes away, I think now we've got that this in the language of dating, it's almost like a, you know, a pre-step to meeting someone in person that you can, you know, maybe skip some of those dates that you'd normally, you know, make your excuses to have a toilet break and walk out of. <laughs> and you can get to know someone, you know, 
from the comfort of your own home rather than having to necessarily go and meet them. So, I, you know, I think it's something that's here to stay. And, um, you know, Five Dates allowed us to dive into that a little bit. And how did the, the COVID curveball, so to say, how did that change your plans? Because you mentioned it wasn't always envisioned as a, you know, COVID dating series, but how did you adapt to that? Were there conversations where you thought, well, what about this idea? Maybe we should shelve it. Or what about this other option? How did it change the, the picture? Do you know what? The, the truth is it didn't actually change it that much. The only difference would have been they would have been going out to bars or restaurants to meet. But ultimately, you've got two heads facing one another, you know, trying to get to know each other. And, you know, so from that point of view, I think perhaps there's a little bit more of a demand in this of creativity, because uh, when you haven't got the things we take for granted to play with, like buying someone a drink, for example, or sharing the same food or trying some food off someone else's plate. None of those things can happen in this format. So we've had to be, you know, really more creative with how we've sustained engagement and allowed people to peel back the layers of the other person in a fun way and an engaging way. So that's changed. I think the length of it, the, the style of the show, all of, and by the style, I mean, the way the interactivity works in the show, I think all of that, that remains the same. It's a it's a player who's got an opportunity to to date up to three partners out of a prospective five, and the success of you inhabiting that person on that journey is based on how you act and how they read you know, the type of person that you are. So all of that is exactly the same from that point of view. And the interactivity of it—that's an element that I find quite interesting. You know, similar to Bandersnatch from Black Mirror from a couple of years ago. Was that how? How did you decide to piece that together? Was it always the initial plan, or did you sort of decide to weave it in to add an, another another layer, as you say, to it? How how did that come about? So we were developing the complex about two years before Black Mirror, and what we realized when Black Mirror came out, because I kind of quite voraciously started reading press and comments on it, because I knew that, A, I knew it was going to you know, make a big stamp because it was Black Mirror. And it was Netflix and it was in people's homes. Um, but I also knew that we should try and learn from it and that our audience was slightly different because our audience is PlayStation, Xbox, Nintendo, Steam, Google Play. It's, it's a much more gamer audience, whereas the Netflix audience, of course, is a home entertainment you know, traditional television film audience, which is a, it's a distinctly different audience. So what I noticed was that although people, you know, by and large loved Black Mirror's Bandersnatch and, you know, it's got over a 7% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, it did have anyway, a lot of the gamers had a very different view. And so I started, I realized that those are the people I should be listening to for the content we're putting out. And what I noticed was that consequence of action is a really important thing. If something happens in a game, you don't want it to be a siloed incident that doesn't have any repercussions or ripples later on. Um, and a lot of the criticism for Bandersnatch from the gaming community came from that consequence issue. So we always try and pay attention to that. And certainly we paid attention to it in the complex, the first film, and we, we've paid attention to it even more here uh, in this one. That kind of human ripple, ripple effect of how a character reacts to you and how you react to them you know they remember it and that has consequences and and that that's really important um because if if that's not the case 
the audience just don't engage in the same way. And how, how does that need for a, for a consequence? How is that reflected in the production of the show? Because obviously having to juggle, you know, a number of different pro- plot lines and alternative endings or consequences, as you, as you mentioned, that I assume requires a whole other level of production that, you know, just a linear plot line normally wouldn't. So how have you, how, how is production going so far and how did you prepare to have their interactive production so you, you script it in a very different way. An interactive production is looks like a, a tree, you know, in terms of the diagram that runs beneath the script. You know, it starts at one point, and then depending how much how much you can give an audience, given your budget, you know, or the type of story you're telling, you you can spread out very wide, you know, or not so much. Um, we you know we try and give as much variation as possible in the stories, you know, so an audience can play it, you know, hopefully three or four times, um, maybe five times. Some people are playing, you know, complex, for example, like seven times. It's really interesting. But to give that reward enough within the first experience that they want to go back and keep replaying is, is you know, what we try and do. And, you know, variation is really important in that. And how's, how's remote production been? Because obviously, you know, COVID's also drastically changed the world of production. A lot of shows obviously on, on hold. But how have you managed to, to cope with... The social distancing measures, the the extra safety regulations. How have you managed to balance that with making you know an, a successful and an easy production? We we've paid you know very close attention to social distancing measures on the show, which kind of we set ourselves up with a bunch of you know immovable parts, which would make sure that we adhered to that. So the actors never have a cameraman in their house. The 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 actors are doing their own makeup wardrobe production design they're shooting themselves with cameras that we ship them uh you know we're shooting on iphones we've shipped ship them sound recording equipment they've you know like troopers gone through you know what is a boot camp before to learn you know enough of each discipline where they can manage it and it's been it's been like super impressive there literally hasn't been you know touch wood there hasn't been a problem with it you know when we've given the training procedures you know with them online with our technicians costume production design and you know that's all with the right preparation run fairly smoothly you know i'm i'm a bit of a technophobe myself you know in truth but it just goes to show that you know it's it's completely doable now i'm also aware audiences don't want to constantly see things you know shot with those constraints so you know this this is a kind of we may do one more that in in a similar method of filming to this but uh, you know, uh, uh, it's hard to say, you know, how much audiences will, um, you know, will want a long tail of this. It just depends how much stuff is being produced, really, you know, moving forward. That's quite an interesting point, actually. I, I was going to ask how you thought or whether you thought the viability of this sort of remote production, if you saw it going forward post-COVID, because, you know, it's quite interesting to have to get the actors and people who normally wouldn't have to perform multiple roles on set have to, you know, go through boot camp, as you say, and do their own do their own uh, production design, their own makeup, their own wardrobe, etc., as well as their their own performance. Um, and you know, as you mentioned, it's going it's going well so far. It's it's working out. Is that something that you think the industry could pick up as a form of um, you know regular production once once the pandemic has has been and gone? Yeah, I I I think this period has shown us all really that we're we're probably, you know, we have to be more capable than we are used to being in what was normal life when we are connected to more people by, you know, physically connected. By not being physically connected, all you can rely on is yourself. And I think that's just the practicality of things moving forward. You know, I think there'll be a lot more of that. 
yeah, I just think there will, you know, in all sorts of different broadcasts. It's the new normal, isn't it? You know, people realize that it's achievable and until you know something's achievable, you don't keep on doing it. So on that side, that's just the production side, though, and can we do it? The question is, is how does the audience feel about it? And, you know, that that's what we will find out. John Giwa-Amu from Goodgate Media. Kenya-based A24 Media recently launched a factual focus streaming platform called Yebu. Chief Executive Asif Sheikh spoke to Karolina Kaminska about the business, why there's a need for real African stories as the continent undergoes a content revolution, how the service is looking to work with third parties and expand internationally. Yebo launched earlier this year, so it is still relatively new in the market. Can you tell me why you decided to set up the platform and what sort of demand there is for a factual-focused VOD service in Africa? So it's actually a, a bit of a, a long backstory, uh, mostly my, my passion for content and the lack of, of this type of content. So to quickly give you a little bit of an overview, uh, this uh, idea of creating a positive story, factual-based uh, content model for Africa started uh, when I was just a kid in high school. And uh, when we went to school here in Kenya, uh, we never actually learned anything about African studies. In fact, we go by a British curriculum and we would do the usual Macbeth and all that kind of stuff, but not African studies. And it always kind of bothered me from back then. And then I went away to, to university in, in the States and, uh, you know, the perception on, on Africa was, was, was so vague as people really didn't understand who we were as a continent. And, and then I basically immigrated to, to Canada and I spent 18 years there. And when I was an immigrant there, obviously as an immigrant, uh, an African living in the diaspora, I was so uh, desperate to find news about what was happening uh, from home. And as you know, most of the news that were coming out of Africa done by Western journalists was mostly on the negative side. Uh, we all know in Africa, we have our, our, our sense of problems and and, and all the issues that we have around corruption, health, and all the issues. But as an African, uh, we also know we have this other beautiful side. So, you know, all that alone is is kind of, for me, always kind of was craving, where do I get, you know, great stories that are the real Africa done by African journalists? And I couldn't find it. So when I decided to come back home about 12 or 13 years ago, I thought this could be an opportunity uh, for me to, to do this lifelong project, even though I'm not a journalist, I'm just a businessman, I've done many different areas of, of, of business. Uh, I thought maybe there's an opportunity for us uh, to find this positive narrative of, of Africa. So I started 12 years ago by, by buying a very old historical archive that was created uh, by a very renowned photojournalist. And we started digitizing that archive because it was an archive that consisted of Africa that dates back from about 50 years ago during independence time to about 15 or 20 years ago. So we bought that archive and started the, the long process of digitization, uh, which took us you know, nearly seven years uh, to bring it back to life because it was such an old uh, archive in the old Betamix and VHS format. And as we were digitizing the old archive, uh, we thought that maybe there was a model where we could start creating new content that would replicate the old. So the idea was to have the old and the new and then kind of put it together and then see what to do with it. Um, so long story short, uh, we've been at this for nearly 12 years. Uh, we fully digitized the old archive that consists of about 5,000 hours of video. 
but have now also created 11,000 hours of new content from pretty much every country in Africa. The content's editorial line was A, to be factual-based, and two, to always to try and showcase mostly the positive side of the continent. I use the term edu-infotainment. Uh, so the content is educational, it's informative, and hopefully it's a bit sexy that uh, the young people that we have so many in the continent and outside may want to watch it. We basically had a very long content journey. What I think I'm sitting on is the largest vault of content on this type of stories from Africa. And the shareholders and the board um, made a determination that it was time to take this to market. Initially, the plan was to launch it as a TV channel. But as you know now, with the 1.3, 1.4 billion people in Africa, we have uh, the amount of young people that we have in the continent, uh, the, the aspect that most are now consuming content in a digital fashion. Uh, we then decided it had to be a digital play. So we took about a year in designing the platform, and uh, we decided that let's launch uh, Yebo.live, uh, which we kind of just did earlier this year. And it's up live. Uh, currently, it's, uh, it's, it's only using only our own content because we have enough of it and we want to make sure that we start getting uh, some traction. And um, yeah, we're up live and, and so far so good. And we're feeling uh, really happy that, uh, uh, that people seem to be quite taken that this content is available and 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 have and have access to it. So we've been up a couple of couple of months. Um, uh, we don't have the hugest uh, marketing monetization models as the big boys do, but we're trying the best as we can as a small house. Uh, we've already got just uh, under uh, the ten thousand mark as far as people coming to the site, and it seems like uh, people are coming on, on a daily, weekly basis. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about your content content strategy with regards to the sort of driver programs that that you have on the platform and key areas of focus and also um, the type of programming do you look more specifically at short form content or, or one-off documentaries or are you interested in series or is it a mix of everything yeah it's it's basically a mix I mean when you have so much content 16,000 hours worth uh, we spent a good four or five years on just trying to to take the the raw footage and and make it into a finished product. So what we've tried to do is to try and give uh, the customer experience to be able to have the ability to kind of watch uh, a little bit of of all the different genres of content and also in different time capsules. So the way we've identified our content is a is we've created something called uh, snackables. These are very short, you know, 10, 30 second clips that if somebody is on the run, wants to quickly look at it on, on the mobile phone or so forth, they can look at that. So that's one bucket of, of content. The second bucket is, is what we call short stories. So these are anywhere between three to five minutes long. And we've created quite a few of these, a couple of thousand. And we're trying to package them in different genres. So whether they're business or technology or human interest or culture and so forth, uh, we've been creating the, that genre. Uh, the third bucket is what you call a little bit long form. And these are the weekly shows. And we've got a travel show, a business show, a food show, that kind of stuff. So those are normally 30 minutes. 
And what we've tried to do is create enough content that we've at least got 52 episodes in, in the can. And then the last genre is what we call the documentary category, which is our premium content. And this is basically showcasing uh, these amazing documentaries that we've created over the last 12 years. Uh, I think we've got about 90 of them done. And it's a blend of the old greats uh, from Africa. So we've got the, the Mandela series. We've got Winnie Mandela. We've got Kenneth Kaunda, Wangari Mathai and so forth. But the way we've tried to balance that series editorially is we also wanted to showcase Africans that are doing great things today, but are not quite yet the Mandelas of the world, but are on their way of, of, of doing something amazing, something great. Uh, so we've got a lot of those kind of, uh, of stories. Uh, one that comes uh, to mind was uh, we did a story a couple of years ago on this young lady in Ghana that would go to this little airstrip and watch this small, small charter airline company that were doing these bush safaris. And the owner of the company finally brought her under her umbrella, started teaching her about uh, aviation, and she ended up becoming the first female pilot of, uh, out of Ghana. So again, we thought those are actually the heroes that we need to celebrate along with the, the heroes from, from the past. So what we're trying to do editorially is to basically give our audience a chance to, a, to kind of see the way I would put this together is what we've created is the history, the biography, and the discovery I've all bundled together as one package, which as you, you you may or may not know, Africa doesn't have a history channel, a biography channel, or discovery channel. We have those channels that are, are being aired by, by the international broadcasters. Uh, what we're trying to do is, is showcase that genre to showcase Africa through those, through those lenses. And of course, to showcase that these stories were all done by an African house done in Africa by Africans. And what is Yebo's core audience? You spoke earlier about younger viewers. So are you specifically targeting younger viewers or are you targeting a wider age range? So as we're quite a, quite a new platform, I think this is the, the questions we'll, we'll be able to answer as things that kind of prolongs. But the analytics so far are showing that basically it seems like it's attracting a lot of different types of audiences. I think we're looking at, uh, at most people that are 25 and up who seem to have an interest, interest about uh, our history and our biography and discovery, seem to have an interest as far as where we were before and kind of what we're doing right now. So the, the, the analytics... The analytics basically shows that uh, uh, anywhere from 25 all the way up to, you know, 70, 80s are, are seem to be participating, so trying to join us. We do these weekly watch parties every week where we showcase one of our products, uh, have an amazing moderator and a panel of experts, and then kind of engage with the audience. And, and it seems like every week we get about 1,000, 2,000 showing up, and they're from, from all over the continent and the diaspora. And uh, it seems to be uh, doing quite well so far. Uh, where we're feeling really optimistic and semi-confident that we have a chance is most platforms ha have to have three things to succeed. They need a platform that actually technology-wise works well, which we think we have. Two, you need the ability to have enough money to either go license enough content or go do enough deals with third-party uh, content providers. We don't have that problem because we, we have 
created so much of our own content. So we know we have enough content to be able to put new content on the platform for quite a long time. And then the third is, is how much money can you put into monetization? And that's kind of where we're trying to kind of balance out as a business model is how much money do we throw in order to, to gain an audience? And then how do we monetize on that audience once we've got it? So we've got two out of the three building blocks. We do have uh, some good investment. We've got some good uh, funding, but uh, at the same time, this model will, will need to scale uh, as as we see the audience starting to come in, in, in larger numbers. And which countries is the, is the platform currently available in? It's, it's basically a worldwide platform, so anyone can, can, can register on Yebo.live and look at it through the web. But we also have an Android app on, under the Google Play Store. Uh, we haven't yet done the, the iOS uh, Apple app because we're targeting mostly in Africa to start right now. So what we thought was obviously as a small company, we can't get to everyone in the world because we just don't have those marketing budgets. So what we've decided is what we'll work on is first is an in-built in strategy. Uh, our operations base are, are, are in Nairobi, though we're a Mauritius uh, headquarters company. So we're focusing on East Africa and then basically looking at certain markets in Africa, Nigeria, South Africa, Egypt, Ghana. And then obviously, then we'll start looking at the diaspora. So that's kind of our strategy over the next year, year and a half to slowly grow by pockets in the areas that we think we want to, to, to give access to. And then obviously, we hope that uh, uh, as people start coming, it can basically start go going global. And when it comes to sourcing your content, are you offering a mix of acquisitions and and producing yourself? As, as I mentioned to you, is is all look this, this is why our model is, is quite unique is we've, we've taken 12 years on just focusing on the content and we've created those 16,000 hours that we own all of it ourselves as as a company and that's why we feel confident that on uh, as we're moving ahead with the actual yebo platform we have more than enough content uh to to get going so our initial plan for for yebo is we're going to use our own content try and get the audience numbers up but then we do want to be a platform for African content creators. And we do have part of our plan to now start allowing, probably in three to six months, third-party content providers that fit our editorial line, i.e. that it is this factual-based content that they can use our platform to come and help profile their work and, and get it out there. So we have kind of two models for third-party where we will be accepting their content and then we have a third model where we are starting to release the raw footage, the 16,000 hours that we have for the creative industry that may want to have access for a few seconds or a few minutes of our raw footage for their existing production because they may want some help in, in, in the footage that we, we've been uh, uh, building for, for, for the last uh, decade plus. And you've talked about, about the sort of shows in particular or pieces of content in particular that you're looking for. Um, what are you not looking for or not interested in? Uh, 10 or 12 years ago, when you would watch what's airing on our airwaves as far as content, 80% of all content would be international-based content that was shot probably 30 or 40 years ago. So for example, depending on how old you are, you might remember the shows called Different Strokes or Sanford and Son and so forth. The American soaps that had African-Americans, Black people that would be aired on here because that was so cheap to buy and that's what the, the airwaves were, were putting on. Fast forward today, 
Uh, it's actually now reversed where 70% of most of the airways are now airing African-based programming. The problem with that type of programming, though, is because of budgets and costs, nearly all that content is either entertainment-based content, i.e. the Nollywood model from Nigeria, or music videos, or if it's news, it's, 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 it's for a news channel, which is basically mostly around politics. And that's kind of what is primarily uh, on all our airways. Uh, we absolutely feel there's now a, a content revolution going on where the African audience in Africa, as well as the diaspora, desperately want to see other types of content. So what we focused on is this type of factual-based content that showcases our past as well as our future. So we're not really looking for music videos or soap operas or Nollywood-type entertainment product because we feel there's enough of that out there in the marketplace. There's enough platforms out there. We want to showcase a different type of Africa, uh, and we think we have a chance because we're the only ones in the world that is sitting on this type of content and the amount of abundance that we have. Uh, we hope um, the, the audience will, will, will like it and, and, and support us. And what are the main challenges and opportunities that you're seeing at the moment in the African market? The opportunities right now, and it's, it's kind of a little bit sad to say, it's because of the, the crisis that we're having with the epidemic. Uh, because of, of, of COVID uh, and because of when we launched, as you know, many, many people have been so disruptive and, and are working from home, unable to go out of the house and so forth. And in Africa, I think we've still got a long way to go because we still haven't, we're hoping we're never going to get to the point where we're going to get the numbers like the rest of the world. But all indication is saying that we might do that. So some of the positives, because we launched during this epidemic, we're finding that a lot of people are, are, are able to access the platform and, 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 and seem to be really enjoying the ability to, to look at this stuff. The negative side is how do we get to, to so many of the, the millions of, uh, and billions of people across Africa and across the world that we're actually alive and we're actually there. And again, because we're a small house, uh, we're trying to do a, a fair amount of marketing. But uh, again, you know, having people like you believing in what we're doing and, and, and giving us a chance to, to get our message out there is what we're trying to do in order to, to really get the word out. But that's the biggest challenge now is, 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 is to tell the world that you know, this content is there. You can watch it. Just come and find us. Asif Sheikh from A24 Media. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>